So I think that's another thing that you got to watch is just this fragility that is endemic because of all these years of misguided monetary policies and this addiction to free money. I mean, I think Dreckenmiller said that when money is is cheap, people do dumb things. When money is cheap for 13 years, they do really, really dumb things. And we've seen a plethora of that, you know, and all these speculative investments and all the other malinvestment that's gone on. And so now we're seeing that the payback for that. And, and, and I think personally, it's naive to believe that it's going to lead to a mild economic contraction. I just don't think that's the history of these huge bubbles. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart. As we head into the start of summer, the US economic outlook appears schizophrenic. GDP growth for the past two quarters has been positive, but gross domestic income has been negative over the same period. The multitude of macro data is screaming recession, yet earnings estimates are on the rise, unemployment remains low, and the stock market is booming. What can we expect from the second half of this year? For perspective, we turn to David Hay, co-founder and co-chief investment officer of Evergreen GovCall, a financial advisory firm managing $3.5 billion of investor capital. And I love talking with experts like David because he's a steward of so much in assets under management that he can't simply rely on just having an opinion. He's got to steer his capital safely through what's coming next. So his conviction needs to be as high as possible. David, it's great to see you again. Thanks so much for coming back on the program. Adam, it's a privilege. Thank you for, for inviting me back. And yeah, oh, there's something to talk about. Should have happened a long time sooner, but thanks for thanks for coming on. I'm glad our schedule's worked out. Lots to talk about, like you said. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to kick this off with the, the the general question I like to kick all these interviews off with. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Well, I think you brought up a very good point when you brought up GDI. I had no idea you were going to go there because that was one of the things that uh, that I did want to cover. And of course, that's talking about the U.S., not, not globally. But to look globally for a bit, I mean, if you look at China, there's been a lot of enthusiasm about the reopening. Uh, yet they're actually getting another wave of COVID and the reopening even before that's been disappointing. So you got to put that as yeah, under the column of, of not very robust. And then you've got Europe, which is back into a technical recession. Uh, Germany looks to be in a, in a full-blown recession. So that's not too great. But there's definitely parts of the world that are doing pretty well. So it's a mixed bag. It's even a mixed bag in the United States. And there's a tremendous debate whether we are going to have a recession. More and more people seem to be even in the no landing camp, much less soft landing. But again, back to your GDI point, I do think that's an interesting one. I don't know if you've seen kind of the variation of that, the GDP plus, which is basically GDP and GDI blended together. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that, that is really, uh, that has had a flawless record and it's clearly screaming recession right now. And that, I'm doing this from memory. I'll try to find a chart to put up here if I can find one when we edit this. But I believe GD plus is negative the past two quarters. Is. is that true? Yes, that is true. And it's only done that when we've had recessions. There's been no false negatives or false positives about a negative outcome, if you will. So it is uh, it is meaningful, I believe. And just to kind of give a little more corroboration about that, you know, remember last year we had two negative GDP quarters, first and second quarter. A lot of people thought we were already in recession. And I said at the time, even though I think one's coming, I didn't think we were actually in it. And GDI did not confirm that. So it gave a good signal at that point, too. So again, I think kudos to you for bringing that up, because I, I do think that that's telling. 
And as you said you know, in your intro, that there's just an awful lot of evidence out there right now that that is screaming recession. And I mean, for one thing, the leading economic indicators have been negative for 13 straight months. You know, that's pretty powerful. And then you got, of course, the yield curve, which has one of the best economic forecasting track records, and it's been inverted for you know, over a year and deeply inverted. It's the biggest inversion, longest inversion we've seen since the early 1980s. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting to watch how kind of the, the group think oscillates around this theme of, are we going to have a recession? Are we not going to have a recession? Right now, the no recession is definitely dominant, but yet I look at a lot of data that's actually getting worse, not better. <laughs> I think what we've had for sure is an earnings recession, which was my highest conviction call. I was less convicted on the actual uh, recession, but now it, it appears you know, pretty much certain we've got an industrial recession. So really the question is, is the consumer going to roll over? And I think that if you look at history, it's the manufacturing side that tends to lead the consumer side because you start to get layoffs as these you know, big employers start to have profit margin pressure. So they, you know, what's their biggest cost? It's labor. So they start firing people. And then all of a sudden the consumer goes into the foxhole. All right, um, gosh, lots to to tug into in there, and and I got to be uh, completely uh, uh, transparent with you. I, I I just came to this interview having just finished an interview with Ed Yardeni, which will have launched on this channel the day before you, um, and Ed tells a much more sanguine story, uh, and uh, I was kind of prepared for that. I actually really enjoyed the discussion with Ed. It was the first time I, I interviewed him. Um, and we've had a lot of people that that have been relatively pessimistic on the on the macro data. Ed, like I said, is more sanguine on where things are going, um, and he doesn't doubt that we might not be in recession right now. Um, but the way that he sort of described it is, he sees it as being what he calls a rolling recession, where it, it kind of hits one sector of the economy and then moves to another as the other sector begins to recover. And so it's kind of like this baton getting passed laterally. He doesn't think we're necessarily going to see the entire economy sort of slump into a recession the way that, say, we did in 08 or, or in the, the tech sector in 01. Um, I just thought it was an interesting way to think of it. Um, you don't necessarily have to share that opinion or not, but I get the sense from what you're saying, um, you maybe expect more of the the harder landing type, at least than, or at least you you don't expect a no landing type, which which kind of is what Ed is suggesting by uh, by this rolling recession that we it, 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 it doesn't mean we get off scot free, but it just means that everything still kind of muddles through. Um, I guess first, let me let you react to that. Then I want to get to your earnings recession because uh, I want to know if you if, if that's over or not, or if you consider that that may get worse. Okay, well, let me first address the the rolling recession. It's certainly possible. Uh, you know, I think that would qualify as a soft landing kind of outcome. Uh, I think that's less likely than it was pre-banking crisis, because it's it's pretty obvious in looking at history that the worst economic periods are when you have a banking crisis. And I realize that that a lot of people probably the consensus view right now is the banking crisis is over. It was looking pretty scary a few months ago or even a month ago. But it's it's subsided. And I think the question is, will it continue to subside? And I would just say that in that regard, the guy that has been the most accurate is Chris Whalen. He's the, really the was the, the loudest voice, one of the few voices really early in the year saying, hey, this higher interest rate thing isn't necessarily good for the banking system. Mm -hmm. Because that was the view last year is that higher interest rates are good for banks. 
because and for a while it was because they of course didn't raise the interest rates on deposits right, right they're making the spread and they're still they're still at unbelievably low levels and people were just kind of brained it it was one of the big things i was writing about in my newsletter so much last year was get your money out of a bank deposit and put it into some kind of money fund or a government security somewhere you get at a higher rate and that really there was very little momentum to do that until the banking crisis hit and then it was more of a fear factor than a greed factor or not greed, but just, you know, being a good steward of your money is, you know, why let the bank, you know, sit there. And, and we know people that had you know, over a million dollars sitting in the bank earning virtually nothing when all it took was a phone call just to move it to the bank's government money fund. Yep. Anyway, so that that is changing. And I think that's a big deal. And we'll, we'll have a visual you can run here on this uh, on this topic, because there is a a chart that people run that want to look at the stock market from a bullish perspective. And they say, look how much money is in money market funds. And it's true, it's going up radically. But what they don't say is look at bank deposits because they're going down just as fast. <laughs> so that's what I yeah. call the, the myth of the mountain of money, the mountain uh, money myth. And it's uh, basically a trillion dollars has come out of bank deposits and gone into money funds. So it really is just one going forward, but it's the right way to go. I mean, it's smart for people to do that. And yet there's still many, many, many more trillions to go from bank accounts into money funds. Why does that matter so much? And I think it relates to the, the Ed Yardini argument, because I think it has very negative implications for money velocity. Because as you well know, when money's in the banking system, it has a very high turnover rate. It's, you know, could be 10 to 1 if yeah. there was enough, enough demand for money. But once it goes into government securities, it's quite inert. So I think that is important because you look at the money supply, which is contracting, and it's contracting, at, you know, for the first time since uh, 1959. Now, uh, the counter argument, I just listened to Stan Druckenmiller, who I would actually rate even higher than Ed Jardini and his, his macro abilities to forecast. But and by the way, he thinks that we are likely in recession right now, and he's not buying the rolling recession argument. But his point is that, yes, there's still a ton of money, even though money supply is falling, it's falling from a very high level. So the overall stock of money is still quite elevated. And I think that there's truth to that. But it is falling. And now you've got this velocity issue, which is kind of like monetary tightening, you know, it works with long and variable legs. And so I don't know how quickly this is going to bite. But I just know that historically, that if the banking crisis is not over, you know, this is it's going to be hard to pull off this rolling recession, soft landing kind of scenario. And I think in general, that just you've got a very fragile financial system with way too much debt. And I guess the other thing that I would argue against the Ed Yardini situation is I think the odds of what I call the 4F scenario, which is basically a, a federal financing, uh, fiscal financing fiasco in the, in the second half of the year is quite high. And it's because, you know, part of this debt ceiling thing where they delayed the Treasury issuance and where they drew down their checking account, the Treasury general account. So that's got to be replenished. And also, which isn't getting much press, is that federal deficits are exploding. We ran a trillion dollar deficit in the first half of this year, this fiscal year for the federal government was in September 30th. We'll probably have a two trillion dollar full year deficit. And you've got that delayed financing that needs that needs to be made up for. You've got foreign central banks, which used to be very active buyers of treasuries. Now they're sellers. They really don't want to hold treasury debt anymore. The banks have got obviously too much in the way of treasuries. It's killed them to have such a, a large treasury portfolio. It's unlikely they're going to be very aggressive buyers. So who's really going to step up and provide the financing that needs to be offered to the federal government, at least at interest rates, which are not 
severe. And right now, I mean, as you know, the short-term rates are five, the longer-term rates are less than four, but I don't see those longer-term rates staying there. Okay. So first off, would, would you say the current rates are severe? 5% plus federal funds rate, would you consider that severe given what the system can take or, or, or would severe be even higher? I wouldn't say it's severe. I mean, that's one of the, the conundrums, and we'll talk about this a little later, what looks attractive uh, in terms of other securities uh, besides treasuries, because normally at this stage of the economic cycle with a high risk of recession, inverted yield curve, I mean, just look historically, whenever the yield curve gets highly inverted, you want to extend duration. That's what I've done for my 44-year career yeah. up until now. This is the first time I'm not a duration bull because I really am worried about this 4F scenario where the government just floods the market with more debt than can be uh, acquired. And it, you create a uh, you know potential for actually a failed treasury auction. I think that's a fairly high risk in the second half. So you, you again, you've got kind of this, there's, there is kind of a bias on Wall Street to be bullish and ignore these kind of macro threats. And generally, that's the right thing to do. But I do think that when you listen to somebody like Druckenmiller, who says this is the most unsustainable situation he's seen in his, in his career, and he's obviously had one of the most uh, most uh, spectacular financial careers of all time. And then you've got Jeff Gunlock saying kind of the same thing, that $150 trillion of unfunded entitlements. Druckenmiller is actually saying $200 trillion of unfunded entitlements. Now, this stuff has been building for years, and it's never really hit a crescendo, right? It's all we've, we've always had the ability to kind of cover up the debt crisis with more debt. And the Fed has always been able to step in and, and be the buyer of sometimes first and last resort. I don't think that capability is there right now, at least when they're trying to fight inflation. So, you know, you've got, I don't think I even mentioned it before, you've got the Fed selling instead of buying. So you've just got, you've got a multi-trillion dollar delta of this year versus a year ago or two years ago. And it just has a, a high high potential to really be a crisis later this year. Okay. Um, God, there's so much I want to dig into here. I'm, I'm trying to make sure I don't lose uh, <laughs> these, okay. these points because they're all good. Um, so, uh, so I asked my question about severe only because um, you know what you were saying earlier was really talking to the the, the higher cost of capital, right? That the, the economy is now burdened with, right? Uh, it was it was fairly addicted, I think, is a, a fair term to ZERP policies or close to ZERP. And we've gotten a very short period of time to a much higher financing structure, right? Um, so yeah. I was curious your thoughts on, you know, can the economy just sustain even where we are right now, let alone potentially go higher for the reasons that you just mentioned? Bill, so let's, because I really didn't address that, is it restrictive? The Fed funds rate a little over five, but the CPI was just reported today, core CPI running at 5.3%. So it's basically right at the Fed funds rate. It's hard to call that restrictive. Now, if you look at, you know, CPI, not core, you know, it's in the fours. And so you can say, well, it's at least a little bit positive. So, so much of this is, you know, where do you think inflation really is? And, and where is it likely to be to determine, are we restrictive? But you look at some of these emerging market countries where they're, uh, the, inter the policy rate is you know, way above the inflation rate. I mean, for example, in Brazil right now, the interest rate's about 14 and three quarters and inflation is you know, somewhere in the four to five percent range. I mean, that's like a Paul Volcker real interest rate. Okay, yeah, a lot yeah. of the markets do have very significant real interest rates. That now you would say that's restrictive. So it's hard to say that we're it's really that restrictive. But the problem is, and you were kind of touching on this, there was such a long period of uh, interest rates gone missing that once they adjust even to a 
what is not really a significant real interest rate level, if it is at all, but it's high in nominal terms. And these guys borrow in nominal money. Mm-hmm. So some of these weaker, you know, lots of weaker corporations are going to be really struggling as they have to refinance, as they have to refinance. And some of these companies are just not going to make it. And it just all of a sudden, guess what's happening? That you're seeing a spike in bankruptcies. Now, what would companies go bankrupt? Do they hire people or do they fire people? So I think that's another thing that you got to watch is just this fragility that is endemic because of all these years of misguided monetary policies and this addiction to free money. I mean, I think Miller said that when money is, is cheap, people do dumb things. When money is cheap for 13 years, they do really, really dumb things. And we've seen a plethora of that. You know, and all these speculative investments and all the other malinvestment that's gone on. And so now we're seeing that the payback for that. And, and, and I think personally, it's naive to believe that it's going to lead to a mild economic contraction. I just don't think that's the history of these huge bubbles. Okay, great. Burst. I, I want I to continue on that. And I want to um, both augment it and then pr- present a counter and then let you Sure. And what you think is is right. So um, uh, Fed policy acts with a lag, right? And we've had, um, you know, a tremendously fast rise in the interest rate um, over a relatively short period of time. And, you know, everybody kind of has their own estimation of, of the time lag. But, you know, roughly a year sort of seems to be sort of in the middle of what I've heard people argue. I've heard people argue nine months. I've heard people argue two years. But... The point is, is that we still likely haven't seen the full force of many of the rate hikes that the Fed has made over the past year, right? Yes. And so we we have those traveling through time, and they'll be slamming into the economy over the next couple of quarters, right? No matter what the Fed does from here, right? So I'm I'm curious to hear what you think the impact of that's going to be, uh, small, medium, large. But just to give you the counter next, and then you can react to all of it is. Talking to, to um, Ed Yardeni, um, he talked a lot about the, the fiscal spending that's going on right now. So the monetary stimulus, that's big, it's been turned off, right? Um, so we're, we're, we're not doing QE anymore, we're doing QT, uh, interest rates have gone up. Um, but there's still a lot of federal spending going on right now, you know, from the Inflation Reduction Act and whatnot. And of course, now that the debt ceiling's resolved, you know, the Government's going to be able to technically borrow uh, business as usual, at least until they get to a point where they have a failed auction that you're worried about. Um, so we we have that, and that's in the tune of trillions going on right now. Um, and then he was talking about the boomers that they're really at the point where they're hitting a, a you know the age of retirement, and the boomers that have money are spending it. He said that there's 73 trillion in wealth amongst the 75 million baby boomers. And a lot of those guys are are now done and COVID's over and they're coming out and they're spending. And that that acts almost like a like a third stool of stimulus, right? There's the monetary, there's the fiscal, and then then there's kind of the boomer spending. So I'll, I'll wrap that up and let you react to it. But you know, on one hand, I, I can see the lag effects coming and saying, hey, David just mentioned a whole bunch of concerns, and this is going to make those even worse. But then do we have this other fiscal and, and boomer spending riding to the rescue here? Yeah, great stuff. And certainly it's true that the boomers have an enormous amount of wealth. And, you know, I'm a boomer. I'm right in the middle of the boomer, you know, generation, uh, born in 1955. So, uh, yeah, it's true. And frankly, 
I guess I would take a little bit different, a longer term look at it. I think that could actually be the solution to our terrible fiscal status because that money is going to get handed down over the next 10, 15 years to the next generation, right? It's going to be the biggest wealth transfer in history. And if America had a clue, our policymakers, they would say, hey, we've got a golden opportunity to put in some kind of effective estate tax that would create enough revenue to pay down in a meaningful way this massive amount of money that we've debt we've accumulated, plus all these un, unfunded entitlements, that could be a great solution. Now, that's, I know, a longer-term thing. As far as on a near-term basis, will that pool of money uh, stimulate things? I think it's a confidence factor. Right? I mean, it certainly helps. Uh, but I think when people are scared, they tend to hunker down. And I, th I think Americans in general are terrified about the course the country is on. And I think you can't just simply look at economics and say, well, you know, really the economy is doing pretty well. I think that's high, highly debatable. Just if, if that was true, if, if all this money was out there and was being spent, why are retail sales so disappointing right now? I mean, the Johnson Red Book just came out. It's basically at zero. You're seeing a lot of high profile retailers miss companies that normally wouldn't like Dollar General. And at first it looked like companies were trading down or consumers were trading down. The high end was suffering and the kind of the consumer staples were doing fine, but even the consumer staples are looking soft. I mean, Campbell's Soup uh, here recently had very disappointing volumes. You know, pricing is still strong. So I don't think you're actually seeing that type of scenario validated by activity right now. Now, it's, I just think that's a lot of people don't want to spend their capital when they're scared. They tend to hunker down and spend less. And I think that's what you're saying. I just was reading, ironically, David Rosenberg. This is anecdotal, but he was talking about being on a on a trip this weekend to a very popular tourist spot in, in Canada by Niagara Falls. And he said, it's just dead. I think there's a, a shift going on. I think it's happening relatively quickly where, you know, and maybe what you said earlier is the case that this just this lagged effect of these higher interest rates. I mean, Mike Green, I, I, have you ever had Mike Green on? Oh, absolutely. He's great. He's actually he is, coming on in a week, I think. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, you'll hear him talk about this because he'll bring up, I'm sure, the auto loan thing. Basically, auto loan payments are up 90% from where they were in 2019. And his point is that as kind of this variable lag thing is people now are buying more you know, new cars, which even though the new car sales rate is down, it's still about 15 million units a year. So eventually, these increased auto payments are going to be hitting more and more people, which he thinks is going to be a 6% hit to household disposable income. You know, that's, and as he points out, that's like the savings rate. It's a big, big number. I mean, what about mortgage payments? What's happened to those? I mean, now you could say, well, people aren't buying homes, right? Because these mortgage uh, payments are so high that and affordability you know, sucks. So home sales are, even though <laughs> ironically, the home builders are making new all-time highs, but you know, lumber prices are down 77%. Well, that's because home sales are very sluggish. And there's just not going to be very, very many new homes built for a while. So, you know, the cost of housing is for anybody buying a new home is, is very, very elevated. So there's there's a lot of drags. Are there positives? Absolutely. The, the number one positive is how strong the labor market is currently. I agree. I think everything hinges on that. It does. But as we all know, or we should know, there's nothing more lagging than the jobs market. So what you have to do to get a sense of where is it headed is you have to look at the leading indicators of the jobs market and initial claims is one of them. And initial claims all of a sudden isn't looking so good. In fact, 80% of states right, roughly right now have rising initial claims for unemployment. 
<clears throat> I think that's disturbing. You're seeing the quits rate go way down. You're seeing average uh, hourly earnings fall. So some of these things that give us a, the, the challenger layoff survey is surging, you know, it's, it's more than doubled over the last year. So lots and lots of straws in the wind. And uh, that's why I have a hard time believing the optimistic scenario, though I will say that the economy has been more resilient than I expected. So you can say, well, look, Dave, you thought we'd be in recession by now. Well, we may be. Well, it's hard to know as you know, they backdate these things continually. But uh, yeah, again, I've, I've been worried for over a year, but for 13 months now, we've had falling leading economic indicators. I just think it takes a great leap of faith to ignore those ignore the yield curve, ignore some of the GDP plus, so many of these things that have had reliable track records that are all flashing red and say, no, no, this time's different. I mean, those are always dangerous words. You better have really good data to back it up. So I think the baby spending their capital might be a bit of a reach. Okay. This this is a fun interview for me because, um, uh, you know, I tend to spend a lot of time right in the area you are, and I'm, I'm kind of throwing these bullish darts at you and, and, and watching you, you know, do batting practice on them, which is it's super interesting. Um, so, uh, uh, can I give you a bullish argument? Would that? Well, please. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, one of the things that I think is surprisingly bullish, and this is more of a financial market aspect, but it certainly impacts the real economy, are credit spreads. Now, credit spreads, I think, are greatly underappreciated. I'm going to explain because it's a basic concept, but most people really don't track them. It's a difference between what corporations pay to borrow money and what the federal government pays to borrow money. And typically, when they widen drastically, it's a big red flag. Well, guess what? They did last year. So you had the you know, kind of the deadly double whammy of rising interest rates and widening credit spreads. It's one reason why last year was such a brutal year. And for those that don't know it, it was the worst year for balanced portfolios since 1871 because people got hit on their bonds every bit as hard as they did on their stocks. And then, of course, if you were heavy in tech, which most people were, what the QQQ, the NASDAQ winners down 33% last year. It was, a, it was a disaster. It's amazing, really, that people are as sanguine as they are after such a horrible year. But of course, now we're getting what I would call the echo bubble. And I think what's helping to sustain the echo bubble is the credit spreads have derailed fairly significantly. They're at very non-alarming levels. So that's, if I was a bull, I'd say, hey, if things were really scary, Dave, why are credit spreads as calm as they are currently? Yeah, and that's where I was going, which is things like credit spreads, things like analysts are beginning to increase. You know, S&P forward earnings are actually being revised upwards right now. And we've had, you know, a rollicking start to the market this year. So what's the okay, deal? But, 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 but I think it's important to say that. I mean, I think we're all aware, we, you know, we should be, that this market breath absolutely stinks. Sucks. Yeah, it is it's driven by stocks. Business. Yeah, and, and you know, up, up through the NMA, the average stock was down, and a lot of the more cyclical companies were acting very recessionary. Now, you, you know, again, to be unfair, if you look at this month, it's like all of a sudden, and I actually just wrote this up this week that you know this belief that when you have very narrow breath, that is automatically bearish. You know, it could be a situation where the laggards catch up to the leaders. And that's what's actually happened this month. Small caps have come alive and they were you know, right. just acting horribly up until recently. <clears throat> so in that, if you wanted a historical corollary, look back to what happened from 2000 to 2002. You had a terrible, I mean, the NASDAQ went down almost 80% over that period of time. And yet there were some very powerful NASDAQ rallies, just like we're seeing right now. But then the downtrend resumed. But in the meantime, the value stocks, which had been so neglected in the late 90s, we're in a, a bull market, uh, despite the fact that we had a recession in 2001. 
-hmm. So this belief that the value has to go down in recession and growth has to do well certainly was disproved that time. And I would also argue that who suffers the most from higher interest rates, value stocks or high multiple tech stocks, which tend to be, you know, the ultimate long duration assets. So I, you know, I, I think there's, I, mean, it's a, I will admit, this is about as confusing a time as I've ever seen. And there are enough data points out there that are opposed to each other that you can kind of create whatever story you want. All right. But it's it's so great to watch you um, explain kind of where you are focusing your attention, because as I said in the intro, you don't just have the luxury of opining and oh, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. You're managing billions in client capital. So you've got to be making decisions based upon your convictions here. Uh, so if I if I'm summarizing correctly uh, on, on the net, you are more pessimistic about where things are likely to head from here, both in the economy and if I'm intuiting correctly on the markets as well. Well, it depends on what part of the market. I think there's definitely opportunities in that we could see uh, kind of the second act of the great rotation. I'm a believer the great rotation is is happening. Yep. And you know, if you look at value, for example, last year, value held up. I mean, got ha hammered for sure, but it held up much, much better than the NASDAQ 100. Now, this yep. year, of course, we're getting the reversal of that. And the question is, does that continue? I think what's different this time versus, say, back in the 2000 to 2002 tech implosion was there was no AI. I mean, the internet was out there, but they've been out there for a number of years, whereas this AI thing has gone viral almost overnight. And that's obviously triggered a massive rally in the AI-related names. So that is different. And, and that's not something I saw coming. So it's, uh, you know, every time is different. And and I think AI could be, you know, a, a great uh, a great driver of, you know, say a, a renewed economic surge like we had in the 1990s. Uh, it could be great for productivity, and God knows we know we need it. I don't. You, uh, if you're looking at these productivity numbers, they're horrific. I mean, they're the worst since 1948. We've had five straight quarters in productivity. We've got an aging society like America, which has a very sluggish labor force growth. If you have poor productivity, you've got really bad GDP numbers. I mean, forget the short term, long term. So something's got to goose productivity, and AI certainly has the potential. Now it could also create mass unemployment for a while. I think ultimately yeah. you'll get more job creation, but initially it could be pretty ugly. And what does that do? And this gets back to what, you know, where your guinea was saying was that, Hey, look, you've got a, all these deficits that Dave's worried about are actually bullish because that's government spending and that government spending without taxation, which is what happens when the deficits explode, it just falls, you know, almost not directly, but it certainly enhances corporate profitability. But the problem is, Normally that's true, but the problem is if there's so much debt that the government's got to finance, that it literally swamps the market. And, and that's what I keep saying is that to me, if you run the numbers, the numbers are very scary for the second half of this year when you have falling demand. And there's very few places, other than you know, for short-term government securities, no problem. Lots and lots of demand for T-bills. So no problem. But I think where it gets really problematic is in the longer part of the treasury market. Uh, where you could actually see drastically falling short rates and rising long rates, which of course would steepen the yield curve. Something's got to convert the yield curve from where it is now to more of a normal upward slope. That would do it, but that's not the happiest way to have it come about. So it's that's why I have a problem with this idea that you know all this fiscal stimulus is bullish. Okay, and in terms of steepening the yield curve because the long end is going up, um, do you think that is the more probable outcome right now? I think it's certainly going to be sticky. I'd say a best case for the longer treasuries is they stay about where they are. 
for a while. Now, ultimately, I think they've got to go significantly higher <clears throat> because I do think there's a, a realization that's starting to spread that is, uh, I just listened to the second time the, this podcast with Druckenmiller that he did at the Sone conference, conference yeah. last month. Great, great interview. It was a good interview. And his his point is that the uh, the math just doesn't work. And there's just, there isn't, there's just not the buying power out there for the, the the amount of debt that needs to be financed, and something's got to give. And and as a result, you know, the, the, obviously the U.S. can't default. So what's going to happen is the debt's going to get repaid. Actually, now what I'm thinking about is Ray Dalio. I just heard Ray Dalio interviewed on CNBC yesterday. He's singing basically from the same hymn book as Druckenmiller, saying it'll get repaid, but it's going to be with printing press money. Yeah. And that to me, is critical that people, if the bond market is waking up to the fact that yes, they will get repaid but they're going to get paid in greatly depreciated dollars. You know, then they say I, three and three quarters percent on a 10-year treasury is not enough compensation. Right. I want six, I want seven, I want eight. Well, what does that do to the government's ability to pay that? I mean, as even Nikki Haley was saying uh, on TV last night that the government is now borrowing to pay its interest. I mean, that's the definition of a complete that, deadbeat. That's, 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 a, that's a zombie nation. Yeah, exactly. We talk about zombie, zombie nation. That's zombie well nation. said, Adam. It's a zombie nation. Um, God, so many great things there. I'm, I'm going to re-ask a question I asked earlier, um, just up a level when I talked about could the economy sustain the current cost of capital? Uh, can can the economy and perhaps even the nation sustain long-term rates like you're suggesting here? I mean that 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 is a that, that is a world we haven't lived in in a long time, and our debt levels are so much higher now. I mean they're what was the national debt just going into 2008? Like, you know, just 15 years ago, right? I mean, it was nine trillion. Probably around 10 trillion. Yeah. So, right, yeah. yeah. Right at that now 30, we're 30. 31, 32 now. Right. right. And again, that ignores all these off balance sheet entitlements. Exactly. Which yeah. Exponentially. No, so it, it's, it, 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 the math doesn't work. You yeah. just have to say, I mean, to, to be a bull, you have to say, well, what you're worried about is is down the road. It's it's not uh, a clear and present danger. It's clear, but it's not present. Mm -hmm. I think it's becoming both. And it's because you just, again, look at the numbers objectively about how much money the government's got to raise fresh money. Then, you know, what's an, another amazing policy blunder, I mean, the, the Fed could have, or the Treasury could have basically termed out its debt when, you know, extended maturities drastically when interest rates were so low in 2020, the 10-year fell to a half a percent. Yeah, I mean, it should have. Instead, 40% yeah. of the government's debt's going to roll over in the next two years. Yeah. So you, not only do you have all this new money that needs to be financed, you get this old money's got to be rolled over. Now, normally that's not a big deal, but if people start to get worried, and again, think that Ray Dalio is right, and, you know, when you hear Ray Dalio and Stan Druckenmiller, and like I said, they're kind of on the same page, it's like, I better pay attention. And, you know, usually these kinds of macro concerns are not realized. And, and Druckenmiller's versus say he's been on this theme for 10 or 12 years, warning that this is just a, a disaster in the making. But at some point, it does. I mean, you know, as they say, the, when the little boy was crying wolf, the wolf did eventually show up. Yeah. yeah. But I, I guess the bigger point I'd make, Adam, is that, you know, you look at the valuation of the stock market, it's very punchy. This is not a depressed, you know, 2008, you know, much less a... 1974, 1982 type of market that's priced at seven or eight times earnings. It's a and and then you got the corporate bond market behaving like everything's fine and and even the fact that the treasury can still sell long term debt under four percent. I mean that's 
that's just complacency. Maybe that's maybe the biggest bubble out there right now is complacency. Despite you, you see all these, like Brooke, no, I'm sorry to go back to it, but he's just had some great quotes lately that it's like people are sitting on the pier in Santa Monica and they're worried about this 10 foot wave that they can see offshore where there's a 200 foot tsunami lurking right over the horizon. And, and that tsunami is, it's headed our way. All right. So I, I, I think you just sort of answered my question about, you know, how can the, the nation, the economy nation handle these potentially higher yields we're talking about? And I think you're saying it can't. The math just doesn't work. Uh, there, there's there's some sort of reckoning that has to happen uh, that certainly isn't being reflected right now in the pricing of the financial markets. They're just they're just apparently way too sanguine for the, the type of concerns that we're talking about. And I guess it, it it matters more how present the danger is versus clear. But it sounds like you think it is becoming both clear and present. And and that's, you know, you. that may be you know, it's a hazardous thing to say, because it, it's, you know, you, you know, like Buffett always says, for, you know, say, I think something's going to happen, but don't say when it's going to happen. And so yeah. I'm making the mistake of saying, I think it could be the second half of this year. No, you know, actually, I hope I'm wrong. That's not something I'm looking forward to. That wouldn't be good for, for our portfolios, even though we're very defensively positioned right now. But I think you also, when you know, this complacency, look at the CNN fear and greed right now. It is, you know, off the charts on the greedy side. Look at the inflows into tech. The largest inflows in a given week into tech just happened. And that's just more hard evidence of how. So, so I'm curious how you feel about the current action in this AI mania right now. Um, I, I've had a couple of folks on where we, we've reminisced about how some of these valuations feel just as extreme, if not in certain cases, even more extreme than what we saw during the dot-com mania, right? Um, we've got, what's NVIDIA trading at right now at, 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 from a price to sales perspective? Yeah, it's like 35 times sales over 100 times earnings. Yeah, those are tough because it's like, it can keep going. Uh, at some point it's gonna get too far up, you know, too extended, it's gonna correct hard, but this AI thing, it's almost unquantifiable. It's its kind of like when the cryptos were running, like you said, how do, how high is too high for Bitcoin? Well, right. nobody really knows. And when you don't know how big the market for AI is going to be, but I do think when you, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that blockchain was kind of put in the same category as AI. Right. And that's, you know, when's the last time you wrote, read an exciting story about blockchain? Right. Or, or just where, where is a really concrete, practical application of you know, a commercial use of the blockchain that's creating lots of demonstrable profit today, like real revenues, real profit. And I'm not, I'm not slamming the blockchain. I actually think it's a great transformative technology. And I think we will eventually get there. But your point is, is sometimes this takes just a lot longer to arrive than people expect. And so we pull in all this valuation to today that eventually has to kind of flow back out because, oh gosh, what we were expecting is not going to arrive for maybe a couple of decades. Precisely. So it's getting overdone. I just, I guess I'm reluctant to say, you know, when is the the point where you might want to really sell out of your NVIDIA or if you're bold, go short. I, I'm just reluctant to do that. I think there's easier targets out there than NVIDIA. Uh, just, I've, you know, been there, done that. Uh, I think something like Tesla, for example, is is getting pretty silly on the upside based on this charging station thing that was announced. But there, there's lots of excesses out there. Again, again, I believe it's an echo bubble and, uh, so, you know, for those that are willing to buy puts or go short, I think there's some great opportunities and I think you'll get some uh, near-term rewards. But, you know, for the most part, I think what people need to know is that that this is not a time, I don't believe, to be adding more capital to aggressive areas of the market. I think it's a time to be cashing in some of your profits and saying, you know, thank you, Lord, that we've got this echo bubble 
uh, because it is rare that you get this uh, second chance. So again, it did happen briefly during the 2020, I'm sorry, the 2000, 2001 uh, decline in tech. There were a couple of very powerful counter trend rallies that were in the 30s even too. And, and, and do, you, do you feel that probabilistically this is more likely that this is uh, a bear market rally, meaning uh, yes. the, the bear market that that started last year is not over. And as these things are wont to do, and they can be pretty violent in terms of they can they can be really big rallies, but they they create a complacency that gets everybody off the sidelines. And uh, then once everybody's back in the pool, you know, the bear comes back out with his claws. Precisely. Yes, I, I do think this is a, a powerful bear market rally, but that's all it is. And uh, I think, frankly, what could be a, a balloon popper here is uh, energy once again, because energy has been hammered over the last year. It was interesting. We were on last time. I was pretty bullish on energy. And uh, ironically or you know, fortuitously, uh, like the XLE went from, I think it was uh, 70 when we talked last year, and it went up over 90. It's now mm -hmm. about 81 or so. But oil is down $20 a barrel. And I mentioned Apache by name, and it was 32, it's 34, it's up a little bit. But, you know, so the energy stocks, which actually last year finished up the year 56%, did amazingly well, uh, better than oil did, because oil hit its crescendo at, you know, 120 last spring, spring 2022, then kind of double top in the summer. And it's been crushed. Yeah. Way more. I never would have believed that we'd be under $70 a barrel with inventories at the kind of levels that they are right now. But, you know, I guess you got to give credit to this, these SPR releases. It's uh, they've released, uh, you know, it, it took them 25 years to build up as much oil as they've re released in you know, a little over a year. Uh, of course, not for any political reasons. Right. It was all just to help the economy, yep. which, you know, a little bit of both, I guess, to be fair. Anyway, it's uh, if we get another spike in energy, natural gas prices fell from 10 to 2. And I believe where you really got complacency is in Europe. I think they believe that they've got their energy situation solved. What happens? And I don't think this is improbable. What happens if that pipeline, that Russian pipeline that runs through Ukraine gets taken out by either side or somebody else, but, you know, or likely one of the two combatants? You know, what does that do to the energy prices? I listened to a great podcast here recently where the very erudite gentleman was saying he he's European and he thinks that they're just way too sanguine that they've solved their energy crisis. So I, I think both natural gas and oil are going to have oil are going to have another spike. And I think it's going to shock people because there's such a big short position out there right now on oil. That's one reason it's been going down, not only the SPR sales, but also the hedge fund community that's just been pounding, you know, they're trend followers. And so they've been jumping on the bandwagon of the SPR. And but when that short position has to be covered, it could be really explosive because the market is incredibly tight. I mean, it's basically you get the SPR at the lowest level it's been since 1983. That's right. That's right. Um, okay. So uh, you're, you're not the first on the program recently to talk about the opportunity that's emerging in energy. Um, if I had to sort of summarize the previous experts we've had, they've said it still could go down a bit further from here for some of the dynamics you mentioned and a few others, but, but they, they're they're entering at these prices, right? They they plan to kind of dollar cost average continually on the way down, um, but they expect that it, it it like you it could actually be one of the better performers from here. Um, I, I want to race through the rest of just your your general market outlook, and I think we're 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 well through it already. Where um, you think we're still in a bear market? Uh, is it? I, I don't want to pressure you too much into into a time frame, but looking around the end of this this well, let me put it this way. First off, I assume you think we're going to hit 
new bottoms at some point versus what we where we bought them last year, correct? Maybe. I think it'll at least be a retest of the, you know, the June low and then followed by the October low, but which would be down a lot from here. And will yeah. it go to a lower low? Uh, maybe it certainly could, but I, I wouldn't predict that. Okay, but at least a retest. Okay. Retest, and would 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 you expect that to happen, you know, within this year, or, or would you rather have a little bit of a wider time horizon? Well, yeah, that's a tough one. I, I suspect it would be this year. Not so much is going to depend on the recession. Uh, if we, as you know, when you get corrections, when you have soft landings or just slowdowns or rolling recessions, to, to use Ed Yardini's phrase, uh, where you really get the major bear markets is when you get a recession and not just an early recession, but a full-blown recession. So that's really the key. And I think a lot of the key to that is, is this banking crisis really over? Mm -hmm. And I don't think it is, but maybe I'm wrong. And if I am wrong, then I think that's going to be a, a big, uh, you know, big feather in Ed Yardini's cap. But I think you look at commercial real estate. I mean, commercial real estate is a disaster, and especially office. I mean, you're starting to see more and more office transactions, office building transactions at 20 and 30 cents on the dollar. Right. And so, so that is a ticking time bomb that is just beginning to go off, basically. Yeah, there's $1.4 trillion of commercial real estate mortgage debt that's going to be rolling over in the next few years. Some of it's rolling over right now. And these lenders are terrified and they're starting to get jingle mail, you know, the commercial yep. equivalent jingle mail where they're getting the buildings back. They don't want the buildings back. Yeah. And here's your hotel. I mean, no bank wants yeah. that. <laughs> hotel. I mean, yeah, not just office buildings, hotels too, and in, in at least some of these dying cities. And it's just uh yeah, I mean, the macro situation is is so different than the way the stock market's pricing things right now. But again, not just the stock market, the bond market too. And if if I was really, I'd have more confidence about the timing that you were asking me about if the credit spreads were we're going, you know, north in right. a big way, as opposed to being so uh, act, you know, calm, calm right now and sideways. Yeah, but that'll be a key indicator for you, right? When you start to see those spreads blowing yeah. out, that you'll be saying, okay, yeah. look, probably the recession's coming sooner, and a market correction, you know, is, is coming. Okay, you're nodding as we're saying this. Um, all right, so so to to the crux of what you do, manage capital, and, and once we get through this, there's an energy question. I'm still waiting to ask you if we can squeeze into the discussion here before the end. Sure. Um, but you have to manage a ton of capital around this. So I've heard you say, okay, uh, I, I think we're we're headed back downwards from here, right? But, you know, substantially, if we get to a retest of the lows, um, that right now is a good time to be selling into the strength, maybe even look at it as a gift if you were down in 2022. This, is, this has been your salvation. You've recovered a lot of those losses. God answered your prayers, get out, thank, you know, give thanks. Um and uh, and I've I've heard you say okay, energy is uh, uh you know you, 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 you think that look you know it's not just completely go to cash. There's some value that's un being uncovered right now, and that yeah the, the general markets might come down, especially if the mega cap stocks correct. But but some of these depressed value plays may actually go up, right? So uh, you talked about energy as a as a sector that you're looking at. Are there any other areas where as you are managing capital? You know, what, what kind of key decisions are you making right now? What has your interest? What are you looking to get out of? I'm guessing you're looking to reduce bonds or at least bond duration right now, given the concerns you have. Yeah, we've been pretty short on duration. Let me address that one. I guess, well, before I go off that, I did want to say one thing about energy and why I think you're right about that is that right now the free cash flow yield on the energy sector is 14%. And that is a, I mean, there's just no other sector that's anywhere close to it. And if you get another run in oil prices, which I do think is coming, then it's, you know, that's why I think you're going to have a tremendous pop in names like, you know, well, 
I really should mention ticker symbols, but uh, anyway, there's a lot of uh, very depressed energy stocks out there right now that could really pop. But uh, as far as the bond market and duration goes, uh, it is a challenge. I think where you have an opportunity is maybe in the three to five year range with you know high grade treasury type of securities, or maybe even better mortgage back government guaranteed mortgage backed securities, because you're, you're getting quite a nice spread over treasuries. Their duration's not too bad. They've got some decent con uh, convexity right now, which means that a lot of these things are trading at a discount from par. Because normally with mortgage securities, as you're aware, the problem in a rallying market, assuming interest rates come down in that part of the yield curve, which I think they will, uh, they don't really participate because they have the call feature. But when you get them deeply discounted, then you've got a decent amount of upside back up to par. So if it's 88 cents on the dollar, let's just you know, say in general kind of average on mortgage-backed securities right now, you could trade pretty quickly to par. So that's unusual. You don't usually get that yield pickup over treasuries plus the appreciation. Uh, eventually, once they get to par, then you'll have that problem of you know, lag participation on the upside. So kind of that intermediate, short to intermediate part, I think, where you're going to get some benefit when the Fed starts to cut, plus you're locking in yields a bit. I think that's a decent place to be. We still like corporate bonds. There's a number, I mean, the largest copper producer in the in America right now, we do like copper very much long term. That's yielding about 6.4%. On an eleven-year bond, I think you get six point four percent, and say, you know what, that's that's pretty good. I, I can live good. with that yeah. without having to bite your fingernails about the stock market. So there's definitely pockets of that. A number of these energy producers have bonds that are yielding in the seven to eight percent range. Uh, so that and and they're paying down debt rapidly. They're upgrade candidates. That's a good way to make money in the bond market. Identify those companies are going to go say from triple B, which is just below investment grade, to investment grade. Mm -hmm. I think there's some of the automakers, strong automakers in the U.S. where their debt's trading really cheap. Uh, you could kind of, you know, there's not too many to pick from. There's a couple. I think they both look pretty attractive right now. As you can tell, I have, I'm dancing around our compliance people who are. I, I totally get that exactly. So don't don't cross any lines that are going to get you. Yeah, they don't like they don't like individual names. Uh, but I will say that uh, you know Japan's fascinating. Japan's been one of my favorite markets. It's it concerns me in that it's hard to pick up. Uh, financial publication these days or listen to CNBC without hearing somebody tout Japan. I never thought that would happen. I was such a lone ranger for so long with Japan, but it's uh, it had a major breakout. As you know, I'm a believer in range expansions. Mm -hmm. When a stock market or a sector or a stock breaks out of a at least a three-year trading range, that's a very significant development in our world. And it is amazing when you look at the individual Japanese securities, how many of them are breaking out either to all-time new highs or at least multi-year highs. So Japan looks very interesting, though I would like to see it pull back a bit. It's had quite the run here lately. Same thing with uranium. I think uranium, because of this nuclear renaissance, is, is really going to have a major up move. It's, it's run lately, so I'd be a little careful about chasing it right now. But uh, you know, I know we're going to talk nuclear at some point, but it's uh, I think that's one of the most exciting stories, not just for you know investment plays, but for mankind. And I think if you've got a nuclear renaissance, which is, I think, underway combined with AI, you could create a very bullish story for the next 10 years. All right. Well, let's go straight to uranium from there. That's the best setup you could have. So um, I'd meant to leave a little bit more time for this, but but sadly, you just gave me so many interesting things to react to. That we're, we're maybe cramming it in here a little bit at the end. We're going to drive people to a video that really dives deep into this topic. And David, we can obviously have you back on again anytime you want to, to dig more, flesh this out more fully. Um, but why don't you, if you can, really quickly just kind of expound a little bit on why you think uh, 
nuclear's opportunity is, is really arriving right now. And uh, in terms of investing in it, you mentioned uranium is the best way to to play it um, by buying these uranium trusts, like the actual metal itself, or are you um, uh, or mineral itself, um, or uh, is it better playing mining companies, or are there even better plays in this space? Well, it's a good, great question. The problem with the miners, and I think there will be times where this won't be true, but right now they're pretty pricey. At least kind of the leading blue chip play, which we've made good money out of the past, is, is outside of our buy zone. So it's kind of a weird thing where you had the price of uranium quite depressed and the price of the miner, the leading miner for it, quite elevated. Mm -hmm. uh, now uranium starting to, to come. So I think for right now, the metal's the play. The other way to do it, which is definitely more difficult and adventurous, is to identify those companies that are developing this ne next generation nuclear technology. Because that's really the gist of, of this whole issue is that we're now moving away from light water reactors, particularly in the United States. It's just unbelievably expensive to build these huge, you know, thousand megawatt plants. Like finally in Georgia, the two Vogel plants are coming online, but it's taken them decades and you know, there's billions and billions of dollars over budget. And that's just the problem in the West is that when you've had some of these nuclear accidents, whether it was Three Mile Island or Terminal or, of course, Fukushima in 2011, which really set the nuclear industry back, the what happens is the regulatory authorities then start designing in all these protections, these you know triple, quadruple, quintuple redundancies to make sure that you can't have a major nuclear accident. And so it just makes nuclear power unaffordable, not just from a cost standpoint, but from a time standpoint. So fortunately, in the nick of time, we've got these small modular reactors that have been under development for many, many years that are finally getting, uh, they're going to prime time with government support. And I think that's the key thing is governments, which were basically apathetic, if not, you know, had antipathy towards these small modular reactors are now getting behind them. And there's a significant amount of money being released from the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, funny name, to small modular reactor development. And what's really interesting within that are molten salt reactors. And I'm actually in the process of reading a book written by the father really of nuclear power generation in America, or certainly one of them, Alvin Weinberg. So he's from Oak Ridge National uh, Lab in Tennessee, and they developed molten salt nuclear reactor technology in the 60s. And it ran for years and years and years, and it ran flawlessly. And it's a, it's a walk away safe approach. And a company that I'm an investor in, again, I'm not recommending this to your listeners because it's very high risk. They don't have a single order yet. If they get an order, that's going to change things drastically, particularly if it's from one of the major nuclear labs. I won't mention any names there, but they're close. But I do think somebody's going to, because really the technology was already proven. And this Alvin Weinberg was just a brilliant man who, and he was very concerned about light water reactors not being as safe as they were supposed to be. But he got outmaneuvered by Nixon, because Nixon was from California. A lot of the light water reactor technology was being developed in Southern California. And Chet Holifield, another very powerful California politician. And so he got the squeeze play. He was on the wrong end of the squeeze play. And Unfortunately, we didn't develop molten salt reactor technology for the last 50 years. And but I think that's changing. It should have changed a long time ago, but it's uh it's very impressive stuff. And you, you mentioned the video, your there is a good video that was uh, created by Micronuclear, the company that I mentioned. And again, I'm not sure that these guys can pull it off. It's there's a lot of things that could go wrong from a regulatory standpoint, but 
somebody's going to do it. And I, I think that the, the answer is going to be molten salt. There's a guy named Adam Rodman, who's a genius, brilliant guy. You can go to the Macro Voices, Voices website. You can hear his some of his interviews. He's he's not an investor in micronuclear, but he really believes molten salt is, is the wave of the future. Um, there's a whole bunch of benefits of micro salt, uh, of um, molten salt uh, fuels. And I honestly need to brush up to remember all of them. But but when I remember, this was described in the context of, of thorium, which I know we don't really have any working thorium reactors right now. I, I don't know, it may be true with uranium, but one of the one of the, the quote unquote safety benefits there was that if you ever did have a core breach, the molten salt would just drop out and it would it would cool and it would just harden. And then you could literally pick it up put it back in a repaired core and heat it back up again. Um, so you didn't have to worry about these sort of, you know, core meltdowns that just sort of melt to, you know, to the center of the earth, basically. You're exactly right. No, that, that's that's true. And it is a huge advantage. The other thing that's interesting, too, and if your viewers listen to this podcast that I did uh, about 10 days ago with Doomberg, who's pretty well known in our industry, and then my friend, who's this nuclear uh, energy expert, he's been in the nuclear power business since the mid-60s. He was a Navy nuke guy under Rickover and a lot of the people that are involved with this company are former Navy nukes. And, you know, that's the thing is that Navy has been using nuclear propulsion safely for, you know, 60 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why can't we figure out how to use that in civilian applications? Now, frankly, they don't use molten salt. Uh, Rickover, who, again, was father of the nuclear Navy, was a big light water guy. But they are smaller reactors. And, you know, one of the advantages of these things is because what, what kills these light water reactors is that, especially in the United States, they're all customized. And Russia and China don't do it that way. They use more standardized designs for their light water reactors. But with these smaller ones, you can literally do an assembly line type of production for them. Right. So that that's a huge advantage. And it's also they can be distributed power sources because one of the greatest problems that we're going to have with what I call the great green energy transition is the grid. The grid is already you know, very fragile. It's going to get more fragile as we introduce millions of more EVs that have to charge off the grid. The battle over transmission lines is absolutely, you know, it's, it's intense, unbelievably intense to get new transmission lines built. So if you can put these small modular reactors, you know, where, the, where you need the power, where you don't have to rely on long distance transmission lines, that's a big advantage. The other thing is, as my Navy nuke buddy says, is that we look at our nuclear waste that we have already, which... We can't, for some reason, put it yucca, but we have it. It's not stored as safely as it would be if it was at yucca. But he says it's not a liability. It's an asset because with the small modular reactors, you can you use that. You can recycle that nuclear right. waste and put it in the molten salt reactor. So, yeah, if I sound, nobody really ever accuses me of being a starry-eyed optimist, but I really think that this technology is ready to go viral. And it could be in its own way in the energy world, almost like what happened with uh, ChatGBT. <clears throat> so uh <laughs> a couple of things one uh you know the the immediate resistance you always run into when you talk about nuclear is safety right uh, safety of the reactors themselves and then safety issues around uh the waste and and rather than try to summarize that into just a pithy sentence or two which isn't going to convince anybody uh the last interview I did on nuclear with Doomberg um, we really dive into this deeply, as did uh, I did the same thing in my interview with Justin Hune, um, who's the publisher of Uranium Insider. Uh, and so if, if you're having trouble kind of getting on board this train that David's talking about because of those concerns, just go listen to those videos. You'll at least hear the detailed uh, rationale for why the risks are, are potentially far lower than the public's 
perception of them. Uh, David, you talked about something that I think is really important and, and maybe not super well understood is that pretty much every nuclear reactor that's been built in the US so far has been a one-off, right? Um, and so uh, from a design and, and, a, and a construction standpoint, uh, it, it's it's an experiment, right? It's the first time doing this. You, you, you've got to go through all these local laws and everybody puts their own little, you know, twist on it. And you talked about the multiple, multiple redundancies that are being put on now, right? So if you have a modular approach, um, one, you get tremendous economies of scale. It gets, these things get much more cheap to build and to operate because everything is, is standardized. It also makes, uh, presumably, I think, the, the, the red tape, especially at the federal level, uh, a lot easier to cut through because folks know exactly what they're dealing with. You don't have to explain every single new uh, design to them every time around. Also, the light water nuclear reactors we have right now—they're they're massive, and so you have you're limited of where one can go because you need to have the water sources and have all the environmental studies done. And these things, you know, can have big uh, environmental impacts in their construction or their safety zones. They have to buffer around them. When you get to these smaller reactors, everything gets easier. You can put them in way more places. You can put them closer to population centers. Um, you, they don't have to be dependent on massive, you know, rivers or oceans. Um, and so there's just, you know, what you're talking about is if, if we can unlock this new type of design, um, there's just tremendous deployment opportunity out there. You're nodding as I'm saying all this. Am I describing this correctly? You're doing great. <laughs> I, couldn't, I, I couldn't disagree with the thing that you said, although I would add, again, think of the grid, that if you can avoid being reliant on the grid, because it's just, remember how would, what big deal in computing was distributed computing? Well, this is like distributed power. So it's... Right. You know, I do think it is a game changer. I know that's an overused uh, phrase, but I do believe it is. So, yes, I think that's good. So I would also say anybody that's really interested in this, Google Alvin Weinberg. Just go back and read about this guy and read about how he got bushwhacked, frankly, by by Dixon and some of the other uh, powerful California folks. And it's, uh, you know, I've, I'm not a fan of Nixon because of what he did with the gold standard. But as I read more into this story, it's like, you know, he was just doing what politicians do. He's trying to get jobs into California, but still it was unfortunately a terrible decision for the country and one that Alvin Weinberg was able to foresee. So uh, he's quite a guy. And um, other than that, I guess, yeah, be sure to, if you, if anybody's interested, be sure to access that link to that video. I know you can also go to our Substack site and you can go to the end of the timestamps and it's there as well, but I think you're going to put a link up so people uh -huh. can access it easier. I am. If, if if you want to go watch this video that uh, that David's talking about, the one of him and Duberg and the nuclear expert, which I highly, highly recommend everybody go watch after this video, just go to Wealthion.com slash SMR and you can go watch it there for free. Um, David, uh, great discussion. It's a fascinating topic. It's 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 one um, I really do look forward to having you back on to get get more deeply into the opportunities uh, that are going to be unlocked by this, because, you know, look, um, huge fan of renewable energy sources, right? You know, we should do wind and solar when it makes sense. The thing just to consider, though, is that throughout human history, we've always moved from a less, de less dense energy source to a more dense one. Renewables are actually a step backwards. They're a less de dense energy source. And, you know, to to really try to make up for the capacity that we'd be losing by, by trying to wean ourselves off of hydrocarbons, just just the footprints and the the amount of of materials that would need to be mined to create all of the solar farms and all the wind farms, even if they worked perfectly, even if we put aside the fact that you know there's intermittency in both of those, um, they just become 
tremendous, right? Where nuclear is so concentrated, it's so much denser. It, it, it's such a it, it's such a better option on so many of the different metrics that we look at. Um, I look forward to. Can I just say, Amen, brother. That, that was a great sermon, and I totally agree with what you just said. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, I mean, you but, said but, when they make sense, wind and solar when they make sense. But you're exactly right. That's a that's a point that I made repeatedly about the great green energy transition that's moving from high density to low density. It's just contrary to human civilization, and and this is a way that we can achieve the desirable outcomes we're looking for without doing that. And we're learning this, right? The challenges of, of, of our current policy and our current trajectory in Germany right now, right? Where, you know, they, they you know, for green reasons and, and you can laud their their intentions, um, but they really overinvested in, in wind and, and solar uh, and they decommissioned their nuclear fleet. And then we had last year happen and they basically ended up burning more coal than I think they'd, they'd ever would. through previous year. Wood, which is even dirtier than coal. They burn, yeah. I forget, something like 15% of their electricity now comes from burning wood, which mostly comes from the United States. And there's real controversy about the, you know, the forests that are being cut down to supply that, including out of Eastern Europe, not just the U.S. Yeah, so there's, and, you know, coal usage worldwide is is increasing. Uh, and Asia in particular is uh, is really uh, in, in, a, in a dramatic build out of coal plants right now, both uh, China, India, Indonesia. So it's, you know, that's really the sad thing about this is that in some ways, by prematurely trying to get to uh, the renewable uh, power sources, we are actually hurting the environment. So we need a break. We need a, and a breakthrough. And I think this can be it. All right. Well, look, um, reminder, folks, please go to wealthion.com slash SMR to watch that video after this one. Uh, David, fantastic discussion. Wonderful having you Thank back you. on the program. Thanks for coming back on. For folks that want to follow you and your work, where should they go? Well, you can kind of see that behind me here. The, uh, the Haymaker at Substack. So it's a, it is Substack. We're a Substacker. So yes, do go to the, that and sign up. Our newsletter is free. So it's uh, it's something that uh, I think will will benefit anybody that cares about the financial markets. We tend to be contrarian, but I think we, uh, for one thing, Adam, like you, you know, I've got so many people that I I respect. I've quoted a number of them today. Uh, my my Rolodex, digital Rolodex, is I'm just very very blessed to know as many people as I do that are far smarter than I am, and I try to convey their thoughts to my readers. Uh, and as a subscriber to your Substack, um, I can personally uh, vouch that it's it's a phenomenal asset. The fact that it's free is is almost criminal. Um, but uh, definitely, if you're if you've enjoyed this discussion with David, uh, I recommend everybody go subscribe to that right now. Okay, well, in wrapping up here, David just did a phenomenal job of describing all the cross currents. And as he said, this is he's a highly experienced capital manager, and this may be the most challenging time that he can remember trying to figure out how to you know intelligently and prudently navigate capital through through what's going on right now. So uh, highly recommend as usual that uh, you navigate this using the guidance of a, a good professional financial advisor who understands all the macro issues that David and I talked about and is using that, that insight to create a personalized portfolio plan for you and your wealth but then executing it for you and keeping you informed along the way. If you have a good one who's doing that, excellent. Stick with them. Definitely, They are very rare and worth your weight in gold. But if you don't, or you'd like a second opinion from one who does, consider scheduling a free consultation with one of the financial advisors endorsed by Wealthion. Uh, to do so, just go fill out the short form at Wealthion.com. Only takes you a couple of seconds to do so. 
These consultations, uh, again, are totally free. They don't cost you anything. Um, there's no commitment to work with these advisors. It's just a free public service they offer to help as many people as possible. Prudent positionally, prudent uh, position prudently now uh, in advance of some of the things that David said may be coming. Uh, with that being said, if you'd like to see David come back on this program again in the future, please help encourage him by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. David, it's been wonderful, my friend. Thanks so much for giving us so much of your time today. Thank you, Adam. I really appreciate it. Look forward to it next time. Thanks. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.